podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike e-bikes that are cool AF. This week's The Chels is brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Hostel on Bagley Lay near the bridge. Scott and the team are always open pre and post-match for a pint of Watney's Pale Ale. Hello and welcome to the Chelsea. Ah, oh, it's over. The international break has gone. I feel so relieved. And I know another man who's probably relieved himself over this is Mr Andy Saunders. Yeah, very relieved. I hate the international break. How are you? Yeah, I, I'm all right, actually. I, I don't know what it is, but this one in particular, the length of this break seemed longer than normal and there weren't even any great sports substitutes to go and watch i mean what, what do you find your tv viewing changes when when it's international break like this well yeah i mean obviously it's uh, it's irritating i mean i think the most irritating thing is we had such good momentum before the break and it stopped our momentum and we'll come on we'll talk about the game at the weekend but i found it very irritating on that level um and the sort of stop start nature of the premier league around the kind of international period. I mean, I've been very, very vocal on this. I am club over country, 100%. I'm only really interested in Chelsea. Um, and and so this is just a void for me. I'll get vaguely interested in England around the major tournaments and mildly diverted when the games are on. But I thought both games were, you know, very boring. And I just um, couldn't wait for the for the City game on Saturday. Yeah, the only thing you could say is it was nice to see Tammy score a goal and Mason score a goal. I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, I have to say, I watched both games with the sound off and in the background, Mm. which is kind of, I suppose that's quite an insult to a game of football because that atmosphere and the sound is everything, isn't it, usually? So, you know, but I I guess the one thing that alleviated the boredom, and I guess we should just mention it, is um, the return of uh, old gobby mighty mouth ex-manager Jose to the Premiership. How surprised yeah, were you at that? Didn't see that one coming, to be honest. No, I mean, you know, I've said it. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? And I, you know, I, again, I've, I've been fairly clear about how I think about this. I loved what he did for Chelsea. It, certainly at the beginning, well, certainly in 2005, and then when he came back in the first year that he was back. I don't think anybody can deny that one of the greatest periods in our history, if not the greatest period in our history. Um, and so from that point of view, I'll always have a love for him. But I just think since he's left Chelsea, he's acted like a complete bell end. He's been really unlikable, and now he's gone to Spurs. 
having said that he would never go to Spurs. So, frankly, if I'm honest, he's a bit dead to me. (laughs) It's one of your go-to phrases about Jose, I think. Um, Also, is the fact that he's talked about wearing Tottenham pyjamas the same as Gus Poyet kissing the badge? I just think it's all a bit unnecessary, and I understand what he does. He's got to go there and get the fans on side and play the PR game and everything. And that's fine, but just don't expect me to like it, which I don't, you know. And I thought, you know, his team against West Ham on, on Saturday, you know, they looked really good until they didn't and almost blew it at the end. And I think that he's got a big job on his hands at Spurs. Um, I don't think it will end well there. I think he'll ask the board for huge amounts of money. I don't think they'll give it to him. I think he'll walk out in a half and leave the club in a worse state than when he started. That's that's my that's my prediction anyway yeah i i think it, it'll be interesting to see because he says he's now basically good jose so uh, <laughs> i don't know yeah there's a lot of people saying well in leopard- the words of christine keeler during the perfumo trial he would wouldn't he <laughs> yeah, yeah well you know he's he's got to justify getting the job i guess but i mean it is an odd one though you would think the way that david levy has uh, daniel levy has run that club so stringently and has a plan in place has kept things to a, a certain way of working that all goes out the window with jose doesn't it or has he persuaded jose to buy into it until he doesn't buy into it jose wanted a high profile premier league job he got it he probably would say anything required to get the job I just think let's see two transfer windows, how he behaves during those transfer windows and how much he bitches about giving the chairman and, and, and the uh, and the board a list of players that he wanted that they haven't delivered on, um, a couple of bad results, how, how soon before he throws the players under the bus like he did at Man United and how soon does he create a toxic, toxic atmosphere there. I just don't think that... Jose can help himself these days. I think he's a narcissistic egomaniac, which was fine at the beginning of the, uh, you know, of his of his um, managerial career and and in his ascendancy. But now he's at the top. He just feels like he's on a downward spiral. No, I, I think it's it, it'll be interesting. I, this is, I think, the most curious job that he's had because. If you really wanted to say it, you'd say, well, he's finally no longer an elite manager. He's not joining an elite club. Uh, You know, they're 14th in the table, or they were when when he took over. Um, I'll be very interested. The one thing I do know, whether you like him, whether you don't like him, it does make it very interesting now moving ahead in the Premiership to have a character like him back in the game and around it. And I am certain there's going to be all sorts of hell to pay when he comes up against us on the 22nd. He won't be able to help himself. He'll have some little comments about Frank. I don't know. Will he go head to head with him eventually? Well, it'll be interesting. 22nd of December, as you say, is a, it's going to be a very, very interesting contest. Um, and we'll see. We'll see whether Jose's still a genius or, or whether he's going to struggle um, in the modern game because I don't think he's really adapted that well to the way the Premier League has evolved. So we'll see. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about Jose. Let's talk about something more interesting. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, that's enough because this isn't the Spurs show, let Quite. us hasten to add. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I guess... It was crash-bang back into the Premiership that the game after the international break is City away. Now, for me, I think I said the last time, this was a a no-lose situation. If we go and get drubbed, we're still work in progress. If we go and actually perform, 
Well, that's great news. We're further along the curve, as everyone keeps talking. Um, We couldn't really lose in a lot of ways, just by the nature of how Frank has set out so far this season. So were there any surprises for you when you saw the team sheet? I mean, I guess the big talking point for me was the fact that Mason dropped to the bench and uh, Jorginho came back in for that midfield of Kovacic and Kante alongside him. I don't think that was too much of a surprise. I think that they were trying to put some solidity uh, in midfield. Kante uh, obviously is a, is a massively key player for us. Jorginho and Kovacic have both been brilliant this season. I think that um, it was a sensible move from Frank to, to have that as a starting midfield. Yes, it's a shame that we couldn't have squeezed Mason Mount in, uh, but he came in after 74 minutes, probably, I think, probably 10 minutes later than he should have done um, to give us some forward momentum. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I suppose the only other question mark was whether Rhys James was going to start over uh, Aspilicueta. Um but he came on obviously a little bit later for Emerson. So, so no, I don't think there were that many surprises. But it was good to see Pulisic coming back from a in potential injury. But um, yeah, it was all fine. And you know, the first twenty-five minutes demonstrated that it was absolutely the right decision. Well, I think what you saw is work in progress. But what we saw is how this team, I think, and I still maintain, we've got to give it eighteen months to two years what it could turn into two years down the line. Um, There is already a development of play, style, um, attacking flair, understanding of where each other is uh, going forward. I think we've still got a problem defensively and midfield coming out. But on the whole, we are seeing a developing side much further down the line than we thought they would be, aren't we? We are, and I think, you know, much as I hate to say it, if you look at Liverpool as a template two years ago where they were, we were in a very similar situation. They were bedding in Robertson and Gomez and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold um, and, and other players in that team. And they looked a little bit callow and they looked a little bit naive. But with two Premier League seasons under their belts, they, they now look pretty uh, solid and, uh, and, and relentless. And I think that in two seasons' time, that's where we'll be. I think that there is some naivety in our defending. Not in our defence as such, but in our defensive mindset uh, and how we cope defensively. I think that a couple of players have got a mistake in them. Tamori has got a ricket a game in him. He has. He's learning. Now, we have to, I guess... Be patient with that and, and say, look, we, you know, we, we, we think that he's an important player moving forward. We hope he's going to be part of the spine of our team for the next decade. He's going to make some mistakes as he learns. Um, and, and the same can be said for some of the other younger players. Um, I think that the attacking sensibility we have is exciting and it's thrilling. And I love it and I love watching it. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. But it is going to leave us exposed on occasions. And I think that you know, if we can sort out what our mindset is defensively, we're going to be in a much stronger position. Uh, for me, the, there is a bit of a, an issue that uh, I'm starting to feel a little bit of pain on behalf of Tamori. Um, I think he's not getting enough protection on that left side from whoever's at full back out of the first two, as in Alonso or Emerson, and mm. actually looks better when Aspi plays out of position out on the left. 
Aspi seemed to give him confidence. He's able to talk to him. He needs someone to shepherd him, him through a game, I think, at the moment, at certain moments. And, and I, I think he's got to be looking at the fact that, yeah, OK, we need a new left back. But if we are going to keep Tamori and Zuma uh, and develop them as a central pairing, then something has to happen to allow some support for Tamori because he is getting isolated more than Zuma is. Um, yeah, I think I think what's interesting about that is you talking about Emerson and Alonso, who are both uh, attacking fullbacks, probably more suited to a three than a four. Whereas Aspilicueta, I think, is is a more classical defender, uh, more suited to a four. So I think that when he does play over on the left, he plays as a defender, whilst the other two are much further up the pitch, and that can lead to tomorrow getting exposed um but you know let's let's not pussyfoot around and make excuses he is not playing at the level that would um you know that we can all be happy with but we can be patient with it and just say okay we understand this you're a developing player and if we buy into this idea that these players are going to be bedded in that this is a transitional season that next season is when we really need to start looking more forensically at the team then we're going to have to accept that mistakes will be made yeah i agree um but that's also why i think if you have asby over that side he can help him out and he can nurture him because um, the one thing i don't a- think asby's the answer i, I actually think i actually think that you know and we've said it before that the left side of defence needs upgrading that I don't think Emerson or Alonso are the answer that we need to go out and find a left back that is of sufficient ability in class because I don't think either of those long term are the answer and I don't think just switching Azpilicueta over there is the answer either it's a stop gap it's probably better but it's not the answer yeah no I mean for now until we can get a new left back that's that's what I would do I would move mm. Aspi over there because the one thing is every time Reese James comes on you you look at him and you go why the hell are you not starting? Because he mm. does look that good. If, if, for all the reasons that Tamori looks not quite ready for constant play, uh, all the reasons you look at Reese James and you go, this boy is really ready to play. He looks assured. He looks measured. He doesn't do... When he's in a difficult situation, he plays the simple pass. Yeah, uh, I can understand why uh, Frank chose... Dave to start at right back over Reese James and Saturday, just for the experience that if you play against a team like Manchester City in their home stadium, you need some experience in that team. And that's one thing that Dave does bring to the team. And I think he probably wanted a specialist left-sided player over as well. So I understand the thinking behind it. But yes, you're right. I think that once we sort out the left-sided position, it will make it much easier to transition Reese James into the team. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I, you know, but this is this is a great thing, isn't it? This reminds me of years and years ago when you get excited about a substitute coming on that you hadn't seen or you'd only seen mm. a bit of, and he he does that a full back gets lifts everyone. It's it's quite incredible the effect he has. So yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. God willing, you know, he stays injury-free and what have you. He's got a really, really bright future with us. He has. Um, the, the, the other thing I'd, I'd really like to just um, touch on is uh, something It's a discussion that's been going around. The fact that um, Frank wanted a, a, a goalkeeping coach, i.e. Shea Given, and it was insisted upon by the club that he have Hilario as a goalkeeping coach. Now, there, there has been a lot of talk about Kepa 
uh, and especially this week, that he's not quite up to the level of what a £70 million goalkeeper should be. Um, what are your views on the goalkeeping coach situation? You know, because people always say, oh, well, he was not that good a keeper. But sometimes the best players don't necessarily make the best managers, unless they're Frank Lampard. Um, and perhaps they can impart great knowledge. How do you view it? don't really have a view on the goalkeeping coach as such. I think that if a goalkeeper has a particular relationship with a goalkeeping coach, that should be encouraged. I know Petr Cech was very insistent on having his own guy uh, when he was at Chelsea. I don't know whether Kepa feels the same about anybody or whether he's comfortable with anybody and whether he has a say in it. But I think, you know, if we're talking about it, it should come probably from the goalkeeper. Otherwise, the club, I think, is in a situation to, you know, to, to at least discuss that with Frank. And I think Frank's probably had an input into it I don't know this is one of these speculation situations that I don't like where we sit on the outside with absolutely no knowledge or facts and you know build up narratives and conspiracy theories that we know nothing about so I I don't know is the answer to that one secondly on Kepa I think that I sort of get mixed feelings about Kepa. I do think he's a great goalkeeper. I really do. I think he's smart and I think he's a good shot stopper. I think he probably lacks a couple of inches, which is a concern. And his distribution has been poor. However, I would say he's playing in front of a slightly shaky defence. And that probably doesn't instil confidence and in the same way that he doesn't instil confidence in the defense they probably don't instill confidence in him so i think it's a bit of a vicious circle at the moment we've got to figure out what we do with the ball to get it out of defense i mean obviously under sarri we played uh, a very complex and intricate uh, system when we took the ball out of defence under Frank we don't seem to be doing that although there's elements of it but I think again that needs to come from the coaching staff what are we doing with the ball when we've got it because there seems to be a level of indecision um, and I'm not sure that all the blame can be put on Kepper although of course his attempted clearance on Sunday was idiotic so and he's had a couple of those so I don't know I don't, I don't know is the answer I hope it sorts itself out I'm going to keep faith in Kepper I'm not down on Kepper at all I think he does a good job I think he saved us on occasion and I think it would be a mistake to suddenly start to focus our uh, dissatisfaction on him. Uh, I agree. And he's young, you know, one has to remember, he's still a young keeper, he's learning the trade. Um, But it's it's always those sort of situations, isn't it? When when a goalkeeper makes a mistake, it's so... Very visible. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So, you know, we'll we'll see. Also, you're talking about playing out of defence. What I thought was interesting about City is that once they cleared their heads after we went at them for that first 20-25 minutes um, they used something which we would call in the old days route one football quite a lot they Mm. would resort to the the lump it down the field and try and get in behind the defence it's quite interesting and they don't even call it you know route one now they go oh there's a a lovely long ball there from City and you're going no it's route one it's what we call lumping it up the field but it is an option, and we do it occasionally with Tammy because his hold-up play is getting better and better. Are we seeing in this in this age of all these delicate sort of ways of getting out of defence that actually sometimes the best teams will just go to the old tactic of chucking it up there? Well, yeah, if, if you've got the players to hold the ball up up there, or you know you've got runners from midfield up there, I think it's a decent tactic. We did it a little bit with Luis, didn't we? Finding Pedro on the right hand side, that was a stop tactic of ours to to get the ball up the field and and getting yards, as they say uh, in American football, getting up the pitch. I think is is 
is a decent tactic. I mean, what's interesting about the game on Sunday is we reduced Man City to only 46.7% possession. It's the lowest amount of possession a Pep Guardiola side has ever recorded in his 381 top-flight matches as a manager at Barcelona, Bayern and Man City, which, you know, I know what they say about stats and possession. It's don't set too much store about them. But that's a really interesting one, isn't it? It shows that we're prepared to go out there and play aggressive, possession-based football. And we probably left them with no option but to go long. No, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. and I, I, It just shows that th- we can get it right, but sometimes things let you down. You know, our passing at times was, was weak. Uh, and poor and then just when you're getting frustrated something exhilarating would happen um this is just the way it's going to be as you say with youngsters in the team they're going to make mistakes the experienced players are going to make mistakes because they're thinking about the younger players so Mm. what what can we take from the game how how do you feel it, it went even though it was a loss personally i thought you know what i'm quite happy with what we're seeing we can't do what we want to do for 90 minutes, and you can't do it for 90 minutes against some of the top sides. They will always come and hurt you at some point. But generally, I feel incredibly positive about what happened. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, the end of the world by any stretch of the imagination. It's disappointing, for sure. It's always disappointing when we lose. And there is an element of us not beating the top sides around us, which is something that we need to get over. So frustrating when you go go a goal up and then uh, and, and then lose. But that first twenty five minutes, half an hour was incredibly encouraging. I think we got overwhelmed in the second half. I think we looked a little bit gassed. Um, Man City proved that they were a battle hardened team who could be relentless who were able to pin us back. We didn't really have a strategic or tactical answer to that. Um, And I think that's something that we'll work on. And I think as we get stronger and we grow stronger and we become you know a little bit more used to the rigours of the Premier League as a team, I think that will come. I think we have to look at it as part of our development. You know, the last two times we went to the Etihad, we embarrassed ourselves. You know, the first time was when we didn't play Kante and we didn't play a striker and we just didn't play football. Uh, and we lost 1-0, but we didn't play at all and it was just embarrassing. And then we got absolutely smashed last season. This is progress by anybody's stretch of the imagination. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, we had our man Nizar Kinsella at the, uh, at the Etihad and uh, he came up with this little report of how everyone else viewed it from behind the scenes after the game. This is Nizar Kinsella from Goal.com reporting behind the scenes at the Etihad Stadium. Chelsea lost uh, to Manchester City here, but you know we're looking behind the scenes and seeing what that means, what the reaction was of the players, what the reaction was of the manager, uh, and it was a sense of disappointment, a sense of a missed opportunity, a sense that Chelsea are trying to compete with Manchester City at the top of English football, uh, and they wanted to prove a point today. Um, you know, it's a young team; not many of these players have been there and done it. Uh, you know, winning the major trophies, beating the biggest teams on the biggest stages, and, and this was an example of that. Um, but you know, they wanted to prove. They believe they can do it. Frank Lampard believes in this young, young revolution at Chelsea Football Club, and uh, we, I was there, you know, in the mix zone waiting for the players to come out and speak to us. Uh, you often just get to speak to one player, so we got N'Golo Kante and 
and he spoke to us about his sense of disappointment, um, you know, a sense of coming here to go toe-to-toe with uh, Manchester City because they believed after six wins in a row that Chelsea could uh, do damage to Man City. And, you know, for 21 minutes it went so well, but after that um, maybe heads dropped, maybe confidence was rocked a little bit by the two goals. Uh, also, Man City adjusted and did very well to expose some weakness of Chelsea, you know, down that left side where Emerson played and, and he struggled. But, yeah, um, you know, you're looking at the faces and just so much disappointment two groups of Chelsea players leaving uh, side by side you know also you know they went over to clap the fans and the fans treated them uh, you know with great respect and applauded them off the pitch but um, yeah you know leaving the field uh, they don't they don't take that applause they take it as support but they don't take it as a job done and they're they're unhappy with the result so um, Frank Lampard as well he wanted to go into his press conference but Pep Guardiola was already in there and, and usually the away manager goes first so Frank Lampard was a bit annoyed with that um, and yeah, uh, he himself gave a very short press conference by his standard, answering two questions and then a couple of more for the newspapers afterwards. So um, that's a very short press conference. And, you know, Frank Lampard's a winner and, and every time there's a poor result for Chelsea, um, you know, it, it does show on his face, really. Um, that's just the way he is. Um, so, yeah, that was a sort of summary of the day at, um, at the Etihad Stadium. Um, the atmosphere wasn't great, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, we all saw a great game. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know Chelsea have a lot to be positive about. It was a toe-to-toe battle. Yes, they didn't come out on top, but you know from previous seasons where Maurizio Sarri's managed and Antonio Conte's managed Chelsea, um, it was a step forward. Um, there's also these young players learning ex- this experience. Um, the small details that Frank Lampard spoke about in his press conference was also echoed. Um, by Cesar Aspilicueta after the game and, and, and Golo Kante also said that there just needs to be a belief that Chelsea can go to these places and do the job so maybe that's the next step for Chelsea but um, yeah, I'm off to Valencia now so uh, yeah, um, that's the next trip and I'm looking forward to going to another beautiful place and a great game um, it's going to be mu- much hotter and much nicer than Manchester I think 23 degrees for us journos uh, and the fans heading over to Spain so yeah, speak to you again soon so, Andy, I, I thought that was that was a really interesting uh, report. That you know, Frank was obviously annoyed that they'd lost the game, that it hadn't quite worked out for him, and he and he had a, a little bit of a, an incident where you know uh, Pep took the first press conference. You know, where's the gentlemanly behaviour there? But it shows that you know Frank gets irritated. He doesn't like losing, does he? He's a winner. He's a serial winner. He's always been a winner throughout his career. So it's going to hurt. And I like that attitude. I I like the fact that he's a winner and that he takes it home with him and probably kicks the cat when he gets home and you know he cares very very deeply when he loses and he wants that monkey off his back. That monkey of you know not beating Liverpool, Man City and the other big teams around us. We in, until we can do that on a consistent basis, we are going to be at that development level. And I think he probably had an opportunity felt that he had an opportunity on on Sunday and it didn't quite work. So so yeah, and you know, it must hurt as well because Pep Guardiola's always very kind and slightly condescending and uh, and praiseworthy of teams that play lovely football against him but lose. 
Uh, and that must drive you a little bit mad as a manager. It's slightly patronising. Um, and I think that probably drives, drives uh, Frank mad. And, and so, so good, good that he feels hurt that we lost and, and, and the team feel hurt that we lost uh, because we were in with a chance and, and we didn't quite get over the line. We don't really mind because we can see what the bigger picture is. I'm sure with a bit of reflection he will as well. It's just one of those things. It's a shame, but not the end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world, but this is the end of the first part of this podcast because we have to cut to a commercial break. This week's The Chelsea is brought to you by the sporting page on Camera Place in Chelsea. Make sure you visit this great pub before and after matches and enjoy a pint of Watney's Pale Ale. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast brought to you by me, Mark and my co-host Bethan. Each week we take a deep dive into the dark world of true crime. Cases have ranged from the murder of Christina Abbott, a high-class escort who was killed by a sadistic client, to the Peru 2, a pair of young women convicted of smuggling drugs in South America. Whilst always respectful to the victims of these crimes, we do like to tell each story in our own unique style, with humour and lots of f***ing swearing. Join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast, wherever you get yours. And we're back. Uh, Well, Andy, um, we're going to try a new feature this week, and... um, We came up with this idea of getting people to tell us about their first, worst and best Chelsea games ever. Um, I'd be very interested to hear what yours are, but maybe we should get you to do it for for the podcast at some point. Um, Mm. It it is interesting because I'm sure people will have very differing views on on what constitutes the worst and best games that you see. Um, how, how do you feel about it? I, I, I don't want you to give away any of your games, but it's, it's an interesting look at how we're all affected by football, isn't it? It is. I, I think it's also it's a journey, isn't it, to use that old cliche of you know, where you started and, and kind of where you ended up. And I've always said that you've got to watch an awful lot of bad football to appreciate great football. Um, and, you know, if you're the kind of fan like we are that have been following Chelsea since the 1970s you've watched a huge amount of terrible football in your in your Chelsea supporting career and and that's I think made the latter stages of the last 15 years or so um so incredibly thrilling you know and 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 brilliant to to appreciate that and i think people like you and i really appreciate it it's really hard i think if you're a younger fan who's been brought up through the abramovich era who's only really experienced success this must be a strange period for you you know not not winning things or not automatically winning things or not automatically winning the league this must be a an interesting and, and slightly troubling period for you so it will be interesting to look at the age groups of the people that do this particular uh little challenge that we've set people to see what they come up with and i think as well we've got to kind of You've got to set a stipulation that you can't put Munich in there. 
because everybody will say Munich. Of course, that's the greatest game in our history. I think you know we, that has to be a given that that's the greatest game in our history. We have to choose. I think something, you know, something a little bit more personal to you, and and um, you know, and 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 think outside the little the box a bit when we do this. Well, I tell you what, what we should do is I think that's a really good point because I was I was very surprised when this first one came in and very happy that it wasn't the Champions League final because you're right, it's it's a good stipulation to put out there. No Champions league final it's not allowed um and uh because it's obvious yeah it's it obvious is. that that's the greatest game in our history you know <laughs> yeah it is but well it conversely maybe we shouldn't allow the worst game ever to be the champions league final in moscow oh, true true you yeah. know so yeah they, they're gone champions league finals do not appear in this anyway no. well our, our first guest who's going to do it is a gentleman by the what's his name uh, andy I think his name's Harry Saunders, isn't it? Hey, I think it is Harry Saunders. Well, let's hear from Harry Saunders and, and uh, hear what he has to say. Right, thanks, guys. Uh, my name's Harry, and this is my first, worst, and best Chelsea games. Uh, so kicking off with the first one first, that was Chelsea versus West Ham, uh, December 1996. I was four at the time. Uh, the game finished 3-1. It's probably remembered best for, for Gianfranco Zola absolutely taking Julian Dix to pieces um, for one of the goals that probably stands out as one of our most famous goals from the 90s. Um, it was Hullet as player-manager taken over from Hoddle um, start of that year. Um, you had Hullet, Zola, Di Matteo in that team along with the likes of Craig Burley and Neil Clement. So it's probably one of those games that, that started to, to tell the story of what the, the modern Premier League has become in some ways in terms of, of TV money and some of those marquee foreign players coming into the league. So um, yeah, not a bad one to, to have as your first one. Uh, moving on to the worst next, um, probably a couple of contenders for this one. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Chelsea, Barcelona, uh, the bridge, May 2009, the infamous Tom Henning of Raybo game where the, the referee turned down four separate penalty appeals um, and you've got that iconic image of Drogba striding off the pitch, screaming into the TV cameras, it's an effing disgrace um, as he came off the pitch. And there's a couple of obviously really painful things that stick in the mind for that one. Um, the four separate penalty claims, of course. Um, that that last second equaliser from Iniesta flying into the top corner. Um, I think I can still see in slow motion haunting my nightmares sometimes. Um, but also that that incredible goal from Michael Essien, that stunning left foot volley in off the bar to open the scoring and make us feel like we're really on our way. That probably in many ways has, has been forgotten by a lot of people, in that, even though it's probably one of the best Champions League goals ever scored and certainly top five, if not top three of the, the Chelsea goals that I can think of. Um, so yeah, one, one to forget about there really. Um, in terms of the best, uh, probably again a couple of different options for this one. I'm going to leave the obvious ones to one side. You, your Munichs, you're away at Bolton to win the first league title in 50 years, the, the 3-0 against United at home to retain the title. Uh, and I'm going to go with Barcelona again, the 4-2 the at home to the bridge, Champions League last 16 in March 2005. And just everything about that game um, was was incredible. Um, the three goals we scored in the first 20 minutes, uh, Ronaldinho's second goal, curling it into that the corner through a crowd of players with the outside of his right boot. I'm still not sure how he did that one. Uh, and of course, JT's uh, header, the winner from the corner with Ricky Carvalho rugby tackling the keeper on the line. Um, I could have sworn 
for many years that, that that goal was the absolute last action of the game, that it was a last second winner. But I looked it up a couple of years ago, it was the 78th minute, so I, I must have blacked out for the last 12 minutes of that. Um, such was the excitement. Um, I mean, we, we've had our great share, our share of great European games since then, but I think that game coming so kind of early in the Abramovich era, really, um, the first Mourinho season, I think that a lot of us who were there that night thought for the first time beating this this European titan in Barcelona, one of the best teams in the world, led by the best player in the world in Ronaldinho, uh, really hinted at the kind of the, the force in Euro, European football that we would we would eventually become. Um, so there you go. That's my my first worst and best Chelsea games. Um, back to you guys, Andy. Okay, uh, that that was great. That just painted such a picture of those games. I remember them all vividly. Um, I know. We it, should say that's actually my son. I was uh, going to say it. I was yeah. going to give you a whole load of dogs abuse there, actually. No, no, no. It's my son. And he's clearly much better at, at that, at me, as he is at most things. So, no, he, he did a good job there. And, of course, that you know that game against West Ham, his first game, he was four years old, and, and we went to that together. And, um, you know, he's been, a, he's been a loyal and passionate and obsessive supporter ever since, a bit like me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's sad that, you know, now you're going to have to bow out of the podcast because we're getting Harry in every week. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, yeah. <laughs> two Saunders in one show you know it's it's a lot to ask for but now it was brilliant and I tell you something that what's interesting that that um, JT goal against Barcelona VAR would have got rid of that goal can you imagine how VAR could have affected some of the great games of the past 100%, hideous yeah oh. it, it absolutely would have been ruled out Carvalho was basically manhandling the goalkeeper no, oh no it doesn't bear thinking about imagine yeah. if actually they decided to bring in VAR retrospectively on the whole history of football yeah how would it have changed chalking off league titles yeah Absolutely. Champions League wins. Yeah. Dodgy yeah. Liverpool goals, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, imagine if the um you know, the the sending off when Arsenal reached the Champions League in Paris, if that had been overturned by VAR and they'd gone on and won it. Oh. Then they would then they would have been the first team in London to win a Champions League. Oh god, I feel so queasy. Even <laughs> even when VAR's not working, it makes me feel queasy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in fact, I'd like to do that. Let let's change football history. For, that'd be a good idea for a book. Football according to VAR retrospectively. I think uh, there's so much hatred of VAR at the moment. I mean, even the you know the the game, the Tottenham game, you know, at, the Tottenham West Ham on, at the weekend, ruined by VAR. You know, yesterday, the, the you know, even if it was even though it was against us, the Sterling goal was you know offside by millimeters. You know, and even if that's a goal against us, it was still a you know still a harsh decision. And I think that you know any real football fan is looking at VAR and going, "This is nonsense. It needs to change." Yeah, it, it, it's too much. You know, for me, I was just shouting, give a goal, just give a goal with Sterling, you know, because it's too fine a margin. I think they need to look at the offside law now that VAR's in. Maybe it's got to go back to the old days of, of you know, um, clear air between them. Uh, I don't know. It, there's something that just doesn't work. Um, and, and also the definition of things. I do not understand why they do not inform and let the on-field referee have a look at it as well. You know, it should be like in cricket where it's 
obvious that something is not what the referee has seen. Yeah, or missed. If the referee missed it, that's fine. If they completely missed it, I haven't got a problem with that at all. I think with with offside, it's got to be along the lines of umpire's call in cricket. You know, where, you know, even if the ball's clipping the off stump and it's umpire's call, um, it, you know, it's, it's that level of we're, we're going to give the, the referee the ability to, or the other linesman to referee or line the game, you know, without bringing in quantum physics to, to, you know, to, to rule on, on whether it was a millimetre offside or not. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, Kerry. I just don't like it. No. I like the idea of it in principle, yeah. but I don't like what it's doing. It's decimating football as a, as a, a viewing spectacle. It, it frustrates me that we even have to talk about it and waste time talking about it. Yeah. Right. End of discussion. Good. Um, now, aren't you about to just get your bags packed? You've got to go off, haven't you, shortly? Yeah, well, I'm going to Valencia tomorrow. Yeah. That's yes. shortly when people hear this. Oh well, when people hear this, yes, I'll be I'll be probably on the plane. So, yes, I'm going to go Tuesday uh, evening off to Valencia for the game. Have a have a nice day in Valencia, and then it's obviously an early kickoff uh, on Wednesday. Uh, so don't forget that, people. Um, and then yeah, it should be fun. I think it's twenty odd degrees over there. So yeah, hopefully, t-shirt weather. Yeah, absolutely, and hopefully... I wanted to go for the stadium more than anything. I'm in the Mestalla, supposed to be. I've never been to, to Valencia Stadium. It's supposed to be one of the, the classic stadiums of European football, so I'm looking forward to that. No, it should be a fantastic night, no matter what the result is. I think it's interesting, because I think it's a much tougher game than, than people first, when they first saw the group, uh, didn't realise just how tough this might be, especially having lost at home to them. But I do get the feeling that away from home, we're a slightly different proposition. Yeah, well, we should have won that game at the bridge. I mean, we just had... It was ludicrous that we didn't win that game. Yeah, I mean, that that was just nerves and and also uh, not being used to the situation. I I think... I think we'll see a very different performance um, uh, against Valencia. Um... Yeah, I, I'd be interesting to see the side he picks, uh, whether Mason Mount comes straight back in. And if so, it still is going to be that conundrum of, of that midfield trio. Um, mm. Or is there a shout for, you know, one thing we didn't say, Pulisic had a fairly quiet game against City, which is understandable considering the team you're up against. But, you know, is there a chance that Mount might move up into the front three? Uh, I don't think he'll move up. I, I can't see that. I think it'll be Pulisic or Hudson Odoi, won't it? I mean, I think that's that's you know that that that's the choice for that position. I, I think he'll probably put Mount in the team for Valencia, and then may um, you know do something different against West Ham at the weekend. So I, the answer is I don't know. It's interesting. It's a very fluid midfield by the looks of it, but I can't see Mount going into the front three. That's my personal view. Okay, great. This sounds like another one of those where I'm going to get it so right, and you're going to have to apologise. Did you look at? Did you see it on some dodgy website that's they're considering it? Is that no? What you this is this is all from my own mind. Good lord, I'm not informed by social media. Why would you put Mason Mount in in, in the front three when you've got William, when you've got Hudson Odoi, and when you've got Pulisic? Well, I don't think Hudson Odoi's fit, is he? Is he not? Um, well, he that's why he wasn't in, involved against City, right. um, okay. and Pulisic maybe he'll just take a. A back seat. I think because I you think might be right. Listen, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the oracle of all things. I just, it feels a bit weird to me. Well, you know, that's what football's made up of is weirdness. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't know. I guess who's the weakest out of the three that could drop out uh, out of Kante, Jorginho, and uh, Kovacic? It's well, it's normally Kovacic. You know, of those three, you know, because he's the he's the more utility player out of the three of them. 
Yeah, well, it, it was funny when. But it he was... likes him. He like he likes what he brings. He likes his energy. Uh, you know, but Mount Ma- brings energy as well. So I think it's a you know Rizzler paper between the two of them. Do you think he's secretly hoping for injuries? <laughs> no, I'm sure he isn't. <laughs> Is it? I mean, because I, I always wonder how does somebody like Mason Mount, who has just been superlative this season and who has had all this praise lavished upon him, suddenly the game against City comes up and he's straight down to the bench. You wonder if that affects him or he goes, look, I get it. I'm, I'm the, the new kid on the block and he's gone for the experience. You wonder I'd if I'd be very, him. very, very surprised if he wasn't a model professional after spending his entire career at Chelsea and then going out on loan under Frank Lampard. So I, I would imagine that this isn't, this isn't going to be an issue. For those three players, Tamori uh, and Mount and Abraham particularly, and also Rhys James, I think they... Are underst- they understand that this is a squad game and that then their egos are not going to be a problem. No, I think I think you're spot on there. So, um, OK, so we've got Valencia and then we've got West Ham. I mean, mm. you couldn't... I mean, can West Ham play as badly for 90 minutes as they did for 80 minutes against Tottenham against yeah, us? Yeah, they were god-awful against Tottenham. They've been poor this season. Uh, it, they just haven't really... They haven't really... I mean, they started okay, didn't they? And then they just went into freefall. They didn't look like a team that has any confidence. Manager doesn't look like he's got any ideas. It, you know, it's it's easy to say, but we're a team with a certain amount of confidence, particularly if we can get a win in Spain and take that to the bridge. I think that this should be a fairly straightforward game. I mean, I, if if it isn't, questions need to be asked. Yeah, well, I, I would say there's only one thing that I want from West Ham on, on the weekend, and that is, please, God, don't realise just yet just how bad Roberto is as a goalkeeper. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I don't think that... Well, the, the other thing is, I, 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 as you know, my, a lot of my family are West Ham, uh, and they were over for lunch yesterday, and we were talking about it, and they were saying that they think that Alvin Martin's son is the third goalkeeper at West Ham. Yes. And they think that he might be bought back in... Uh, for the Chelsea game so we might see a, a new goalkeeper but he's very young and uh, and very inexperienced so you know it's it's it, it'll be interesting to see what they do there but yeah but Roberto's god awful he's oh, he's terrible and I think actually as a team they just look like a, you know they look lost um, but yet but yet still managed to score two goals and you know and, and almost scrape a point uh, you know against Tottenham well, that's it, you know, it's one of, yeah, but that's a classic Mourinho, shutting up shop, but he doesn't realise who he's got mind in the shop. Didn't have Mikel to bring on, did he? Yeah, exactly, exactly, no Mikel. Yeah. So anyway, all right, well look, it's, it's that time, we should do predictions, so what are your predictions for Valencia? I think it'll be a reasonably tight game, I think it'll be 2-1 to Chelsea. I'll go with that. Um, I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for one nil to Chelsea. I think we're going to keep a clean sheet. Oh, okay. I, I just really fancy it. And then West Ham. Well, I'm going to go first because I never go first, um, except for the times when I always say that. Um, I'm going to say it is going to be uh, a straightforward two nil win. Yeah, I'm going to be really confident on this one. I think clean sheet and 4-0. I, 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 they're just terrible. And I think we'll create chances against them. I think we'll rip their back four to pieces. If we can just remain solid and, and professional at the back and look out for set pieces particularly, I think we'll have no problems whatsoever. 
Yeah. Who, know, I, who knows? I'm who knows, though? <laughs> no, you don't. But, yeah, but it's that kind of season, isn't it? I mean, yeah. look at Sheffield United, Man U, ending up 3 all. You, you just couldn't have seen that one coming. So no. anything could happen, but I think you're right. I think it's going to be a nice old victory. Anyway, we're, we're out of time now. So I'd just like to say thanks, as always, to uh, Nes Kinsella. Uh, and thank you ever so much for reporting for us, as always. Um, we'll hear from him next week. Uh, and thank you very much to uh, Andy Saunders for, for siring a son who could report on his first best and worst Chelsea games ever. Harry Saunders, much appreciated. And thank you to the, the father, Mr. Andy Saunders, as always. See you next week. See you all next week. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at Chelsea Podcast. Dot net. Sports Social Podcast Network.